Massive thank you as always to our top tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Fraud, substance use disorder counsellor Eco Hero, and myself, the editor and producer Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So, if you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice, tell your friends about us, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube. This week, as a bit of a twist, we are getting interviewed by YouTuber Elliot Sang. Elliot has mentioned this podcast on his channel, uh, which is well worth checking out. And parts of this recording have since been incorporated into another of his videos. We touch on a range of various mental health topics and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it. In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. And have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. I was going to ask if, if you could share, Harriet, what your journey was with the podcast and how it's developed over time. Max Golding got in touch with me and said, I want to start a podcast. You're the only person I know brings together the economy and politics and psychology. Would you do it? I said, okay. So it started and then Max got tired of it and we got the marvelous gift of Liam's participation and then Ekoi joining us. And so it, it continued and not only does Liam do the tech, but he does a lot of work finding people to join us. And we're different enough in age and in concentration that it worked. So I here we are. It's worked really well. Yes. Yeah, I would say so as well. I really enjoyed the material. I actually, I wasn't able to talk with you guys before doing the video that I'm about to release, but we're working on a video now about the education system that I largely was basing off of the episode you recently had with Dr. Fisher. And I got a lot of interesting insights into that, which was helpful because a lot of sort of education critique is mixed in some different ideological sort of agendas and seeing it from a, a leftist sort of materialist sort of way of approaching it as well as approaching the sort of human and personal and psychological side, I think it's so important and something that I find this podcast has such a valuable insight on. Louis Althusser, who is a very well-known Marxist, he doesn't exist right now, he's dead, but he wrote amazingly, that his theory of ideological state apparatuses, which are the family, authoritarian religion, and authoritarian education, work together to teach children the lines of dominance and submission and teach the kids that they are not important and they need to subordinate themselves. And so that you don't even need cops and the army because people put themselves down and keep submissive. And so that that's a very important kind of connector of the education and the psychology. Yeah, Yeah, I was having a conversation with my friend the other day, just how most of adult life is trying to unprogram all the stuff that happened in school, right? Because that submission happens almost automatically. You grow up amongst giants who have total control of your life. I think Mm. that's why 85% of child homicides are by their parents, because these people are utter dictators. 
and you have to obey for your own survival. And if your parents aren't authoritarian, you still get the picture that you better please these people because otherwise you're up to creek. And, you know, the idea, I don't know why everyone doesn't understand that it's an utter non sequitur to think just because you got pregnant, you could take care of anybody, no less a totally helpless infant 24 hours a day. And so people grow up with these irrational dictators. A good baby is a baby that is quiet, not a baby that talks a lot, makes a lot of noise. It's good for the parents, not the baby. And so exactly. that there's a crippling effect of the authoritarian family, which even when it tries not to be, by its very isolated structure, is an authoritarian family. And right. that's what we all grow up with. And that's why Leon's point is so important that you spend two thirds of your life getting over the first third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes feel it's you're under the sort of impression that you spend your childhood to learn so that you can get into this next part of your life. And then you get to the next part of your life and then you're like, I'm going to have to spend this entire part of my life unlearning what <laughs> I've learned in the past <laughs> 20, 22 years or so. And so that was really instructive for me. And there's a number of subjects that we're interested in talking about and my viewers have been interested by. So I wanted to run a couple of them by you for the next, let's say, 40 minutes or so and just hear some of you guys, your thoughts on it, whether it's insights you found from the podcast itself or just in general. And part of that, I think, is very related to the education system and this idea of sort of authoritarian structures because a lot of sort of the common tension of mental health discourse and understanding mental condition is one of understanding the sort of normative versus outsider implications of it, right? There's a lot of theory that it's some of it is more, let's say, agreeable than others, but there's definitely a lot of questioning of like how much are our mental disorders or mental conditions as we understand them, just social constructions that people create to describe people whose brains aren't properly cooperating with the system that's bad. And I think that there's some interesting points made on both sides of that argument, but I'm curious about how you feel, the three of you, on the sort of social constructionism aspect of mental health and where that sort of those lines are drawn between is this normativization, normativization of a person or are we like, where do we say, okay, this is something that we can adapt, like something that we have to treat psychologically as something aside from like the normative aspect. Like, what would be your working definition of normative? It's a great question. I think yeah. generally, like, speaking of normative, norms, generally it's a pejorative thing almost where we talk about your social conditioning and like the things that, for instance, you have to, to do in order to socialize successfully, but also just things like, for instance, the education system, right? right. Like a lot of the early conversation about a person's mental conditions comes from, I didn't do well in school, or I was always really awkward in class, or I always had these issues. My, my journey with understanding like that I may have ADHD and things like that came from my difficulties with being in school and people saying, oh, he's so smart, but he doesn't care. I think that kind of thing. And part of it is a struggle for me of, yeah, I actually just realized my brain works differently. And that was normal for me to have those struggles. And then part of it is also, but wait, like, class sucked anyway and I was right so it wasn't like I was missing much 
And so I'm curious where you guys come down on on, on that sort of dynamic, that sort of tension. Well, one of the issues about how we look at mental health is that everything is so compartmentalized and hyper compartmentalized in our society. And in a certain sense, there is very little link is still one compartment to the next. Right. So we talk a lot about intersectionality and we also in psych circles talk about like the bio psychosocial. And a lot of these things, very rarely are people really trying to look at a whole person because that's also like the case in physical medical settings, right? Where you see all these specialists that don't necessarily talk to or coordinate very well with each other in the medical system. And in the mental health system, it's a similar thing where a lot of times, you know, a lot of people go into seeking care in these systems and end up feeling very disjointed because you aren't thought of as a person, you are thought of as a problem to manage. So if we take something like substance use disorder, right, there is a huge aspect that is very popular in that sector of treatment, of treating substance use disorder as a brain disease. And on one hand, there is a well-intentioned attempt to, because drug use is such a stigmatized activity, especially for those who are facing socioeconomic struggles, right? Because a wealthy can do anything, get away with it but not the poor. So there is an attempt to destigmatize it by saying, oh, no, it's a brain disease. It's not a personal choice. And to a certain degree, can substance use disorder be a brain disease? Sure, right? Certain diagnoses does increase the risk for one traumatic brain injury, for example. Sure, but to apply that to everybody. Because that's also one of the aspects of the expedience model of diagnosis and mental health is that they try to fit you into a very narrow primary kind of diagnosis. This is your biggest issue. And these are a couple of the smaller issues. Then they're all compartmentalized. And this is your problem rather than looking at what what happen to you throughout your life to contribute to all these factors happening. Because a huge part that is missed is also the link to mental health and physical health, not in the reductive way, but how much they influence each other. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because everything is sculpting and changing everything else. I'm old enough to have been a child in the 1950s. And I could see around me, there was much less dysfunction among young people. We were the, the only economy to survive World War II. All the other advanced countries were decimated. We were the kings of the world. We were in a racist, sexist nation. But as long as you were in a family headed by a white male, and the whites were the majority then, Every generation could do better than the next so that there was a sense of hope. And that was your national sense. Opportunities were open. When you graduated from high school or college, you could always get a job as long as you were white. It was probably a decent job. And 
if you were white and male, it would be a better job and you could make a living and males could make a family wage that would support dependents. And so that there was a sense socially of hope and possibility that affected everyone's mental health. It's one of the reasons that Americans are in such terrible shape now. The empire is falling and they won't admit it. They deny it, dissociate and project it onto other people. But that's happening and opportunities are closing down and people are frightened and violence is increasing because it's so profitable to sell guns where so that the capitalist system is involved in terms of selling and the empire is involved socially and the personal family is involved and all these things mutually shape one another so that it's what Ikoi is saying that compartmentalizing is not seeing all the what happened rather when somebody comes in troubled you don't think oh how did you get there what happened what's happening now right this model is something that could be administered with a pill which is the way they usually administer people's psychological difficulty and they don't work yeah i think maybe to glue the two different things together there there's a we had a guest on lucy johnston one of the authors of the power threat meaning framework and one of the sort of opening lines in that or ideas is not what is wrong with you, what's happened to you. Maybe I'm misinterpreting what the question is, but to my mind, it's navigating social structures or society. It just feels like there is endless pressures pulling you in multiple different directions all the time and it never seems to end. And uh, yeah, how you navigate all of that stuff. I think the best version of it is if you actually have had a good amount of sleep, you've had something to eat, you have some sort of roof over your head. It all requires stability to have any sort of ability to reflect on any of this sort of stuff. And I think one of the things both Harriet Ecoy and Max are all making the point that th there's so many people who don't have this sort of base level, sort of foundational stability in their lives to be making quote unquote rational decisions. And we can't have a healthy society if people are just overworked, underpaid, stressed out. The best case scenario is if you do have these sort of base level of resources, it's just like listening to everyone and believing no one, including definitely don't listen to anything I say. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe I'm misinterpreting the question. No, I think you all, you've all answered it quite well. I think quite interestingly, divergent, not quite divergent, but like unique methods. I think it's perfectly what I was looking for and really insightful. And I think also it, it ties in well to some of the other concerns because a lot of what ends up happening with the channel, and I think you probably felt some of this too, although it's been much clearer given that your podcast has had a theme from the beginning. But with our channel, it's felt at the beginning, it was like we're pulling on a different topic every week. So maybe we might talk about this political subject. Maybe we might talk about this social media thing that's happening. And then maybe we'll talk about mental health. And then the more that everything sort of moves on, the more you realize, oh my goodness, this is all very interconnected. And so every time that I talk about something that happens on the news, it's like, now I'm thinking about it with these different angles in mind to understand, for lack of a better term, like a holistic sort of look at how this is affecting the condition of a pe person in my audience and of the people that I see around me. And so one of the things is that sort of, of course, it's like this balance between what we feel is done to us and what we feel we do to ourselves. 
And I think it seems like a very common social tendency is people like to have labels and easy sort of constructions of ideas that they can just say that they have or that they are so that they can just define it to others or in the case of like disorder versus disability, the legal and workplace benefit sort of implications of this. But there's also, we've had some conversations about like things like Myers-Briggs tests and personality tests. Yeah. Um, because there's this really interesting compulsion that people have of being like, let me take this test that shows what my personality is. So then I could tell a person I'm like that because I'm a campaigner. I'm an ENFP or whatever. And I'm curious. And of course that links to like very interestingly with like Jungian psychology and then self-help. A lot of it is very anchored in like Jungian ideas, especially somebody like Dr. Peterson. And there's a lot of interesting correlation with the conservative element there. People have types of brains and then we're on these journeys and then we just have to find in ourselves the thing that we have to do. So I'm interested from you guys' perspective on how, what personality tests and things like in pop psychology ideas and where they may be maybe beneficial in certain ways, like in a self-help sense for average people under capitalism but where they may also be potentially either a distraction or like an outright problem for a lot of how we think of ourselves. Freud thought of the idea of all the determination, which was then developed by Althusser and developed Freudian by New Marxism. And that is that everything, over-determination means that everything shapes everything else. So you're not going to be uniformly determined by and that <clears throat> everything is relevant here. And so I think that the tests may show you where you are at that moment. What psychology should show you should be a revolutionary practice that where you are at this moment doesn't mean where you have to be, just like where you are economically doesn't mean that you have to stay there, that there are social transformations and you can help them happen. And there are personal transformations that you can help happen. And I think if you want to take validate those tests to show you where you are that second. You could also know that if somebody gives you a birthday cake, your biochemistry will change at that moment. And you might take the test differently. Or if you stub your toe, that we're constantly changing. And we have to look at, at all the forces that mutually mold each other and us and see ourselves as part of a social continuum. And I think that's politically important because of its ramifications, that we need each other. And if we want transformation, it's not just a personal thing. It's a social thing as well. Yeah, actually, I often repeat this because it blew my mind at the time, but we had a guest, Ian Park, who was co-author of Psychoanalysis and Revolution, a book. One of the things he was saying is that the unconscious is not something, some sort of deep well inside you that's mysterious, but that it's a social thing that your unconscious is formed by the society that you're in our collective unconscious is shaped by each other essentially not necessarily just like mystic symbols and all that kind of stuff yeah i was wondering if you quite had any particular things that she wanted to add as well in terms of this conversation about self-labeling and labels and personality tests one of the things that i always tell clients is that like everything has pros and cons and everything has like a scope a proper app application, right? 
So one of the things to think about in terms of anything like diagnosis, anything like personality tests, Harriet said, what are the major factors to always think about, right? Which is that these are not fixed necessarily, that this isn't necessarily who you are forever and ever, or that people aren't necessarily, quote unquote, like born this way. Because a lot of times people take things like, oh, I am at ENP or I'm at INP or whatever, if you're going Meyer-Briggs, and they'll think that is like their core nature, then that is the culmination maybe of this time and place that you're in right now because of all your experiences. Because even things like introversion and extroversion are oftentimes like hugely economically and socially mediated. As somebody that if I had to identify as like extrovert or introvert, I would probably scale very far on the introvert side of things. But even then, like when I think about it, is that my nature or is that my condition and upbringing? And one of the things that, you know, because Meyer-Briggs is such a dominant kind of thing in our current pop psychology, as over like the last, what, 15 years, it's like the economy got worse and worse. People started identifying more as an introvert. And I remember having this conversation with a guy that I used to know, and he was like having like these huge, massive parties all the time at his house. He was always organizing these events. And then I saw him and I was just like, oh, yeah, how are you doing? And we were just catching up. And I was like, yeah, are you still having these big events? And he was like, oh, no, I'm rediscovering my inner introvert. Right. And the funny thing is the more that like I just sat and listened and started talking to him, I was just like, oh, my God, you're going through some really personal and economic distress right now. Of course, you're not in the mood for party. But the funny thing of how he would reframe that as I rediscovering my inner introvert. All these things have a huge element of what is going around you or what is happening to you. And if you're encouraged to not necessarily think like that, you then your internal sort of narrator will then just convince you it's something else entirely. And again, like, I'm not necessarily wanting to deny somebody their own interpretation of things, because it really could be that he could be like, ah, damn, I was trying to, like, please so many people throughout my life, and I got tired of that. That might be a very real thing, so I'm not denying that's the case, but... I'm also sure that going through a lot of personal and economic distress doesn't also put you in a party organization mode either. That's totally true. And also the critique of essentialism is going on in every social science as if there's an essential something. It's like believing in God. There's this essential truth. No, there isn't. Truth is always changing. Nothing is an undying essence. And I think trying to pin things as constant, they take away the whole revolutionary idea that we are always in transformation and we can help that process of change. It's very reactionary, actually. I wonder what a diagnosis could be for individuals or groups or a society that wants to pin things down and categorize everything all the time. Like, it's that zooming out and then... What was that? 
it would fit into post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, that you right. need that security of holding on to what you can. Yeah, I think that they call it academia. Um, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. I don't want to be like the woo-woo guy, but I do study like Buddhism a lot. And I think there's a lot of tenets that are in Buddhist texts and ideals that are basically this, but I feel like there's this disconnect. And I'm going to transition this into a question that just bringing this. But there's this disconnect that sort of happens where people like to take, I don't know if they like to take narrow ideals from things, but I think people definitely have an interest in attaching themselves to ideas as if they're like these almost permanent, like discrete things that are true. And even though there's not really like a truth that they can observe, but it's something that helps them narrativize their life and the world. And when those things are revealed to not necessarily be true, then that's where a lot of psychological sort of damage or or fear or pain comes from almost, where it's like people are circling themselves to try to make sure that their worldview doesn't collapse. It's really difficult because they founded themselves on a foundation of something that's not very strong at all. And I think that there's a really interesting correlation with this idea of mindfulness, for example, that is discussed a lot in therapy as like a therapeutic technique. Anxiety is like one of the key, like one of the big symptoms of like our time that people discuss a lot and everybody feeling very anxious for obvious sociopolitical reasons, but also people being diagnosed as if it's like a nascent, like a disorder for a lot of people in their experience. So that brings me to like this, there's a sort of neoliberalization of of an idea of mindfulness where it's like you go to your counseling office and you're, you work for a weapons manufacturer and then they help you calm down so that you can better do your job of selling yeah. arms, right? It's like this idea that, okay, we're going to calm you down and ease you into the process of what you're doing. Whereas like a more like honest and like from the source teaching of mindfulness, it's like, that's not, this is supposed to be at all. And I'm curious about how, how sort of you guys reflect on like the way that people interpret psychology and like if not direct like psychological like scientific ideas that then like spiritual ideas like how there's I guess Dr. like Jordan Peterson is like an example of a person who is really good let's say at giving people some simple ideas of this is how psychology works and then having them apply that in a sort of way so when you look at the way that people talk about psychology let's say outside of your podcast, especially because your podcast occupies a pretty unique space as a kind of critical and leftist view of these issues. When you look at the rest of the field and the mainstream sort of psychological discourse, what are like the sort of main sort of critiques or like issues that you have with it? Mainstream psychology content, self-help content kind of things. I think it's not an accident that Jordan Peterson had a nervous breakdown because of lying all the time and oversimplifying and trying to sell ideas that are retrograde as well as misogyny on the side, on his side, his byproducts. Because I do think, and what I have seen in my practice, I've been in practice for 47 years, a long time. And what I see is the biggest, most painful rupture is a loss of connection with A, other people, yourself, and C, the society you live in, and D, the world you live in. And that the more people feel connected, the better off they are. 
And so that they're not mired in their own, I'm this and I'm that, and put a label on it and take a medicine. They're feeling I'm a human being among other humans, struggling to make myself and the world better. That seems to me to be really salient. And I was impressed that when Ecois invited guests who were people who had been imprisoned for drugs, said, yes, when I said a connection is what people really need. Certainly don't need jail and solitary. That's torture because you are the least connected then. And you're not connected with yourself if you're numbed out on drugs either. And I found in helping people as the psychological person, I always, I have psychiatrists who help me off their meds. Since it messes up your brain, you really have to be careful about how you withdraw. But that getting connected with yourself, connected deeply with other people, connected to what's going on that in the world and doing something about it is hugely therapeutic and it's not part of the psychology paradigm at the moment and I think it should be. One of the major things I think probably the biggest critique that I would have is again riffing on what Harriet said about connection like ultimately a huge part of connection is being curious about other people and being curious about yourself right? Mm -hmm. It comes from a place of curiosity that's grounded in compassion. And one aspect of kind of like the compartmentalized diagnosis thing is that it shuts down that curiosity because it's, oh, okay, you're bipolar too. I know who you are, right? You have this and this. I know who you are. Oh, I don't like this diagnosis. I don't like you. Especially if you have some of the more stigmatized diagnosis like the cluster Bs and whatnot. So I think one aspect of it is that it shuts down curiosity about yourself and other people. And that is probably the most important aspect of ultimately, like, why do people go and get help? Why do people go to therapy? Is ultimately, it's not just about wanting to better yourself, but wanting to have other connections in life, wanting mm -hmm. to develop a more fulfilling, more intimate, more thorough, more supportive relationships in your life. Because that requires certain skill sets, that requires cooperative skill sets, that requires good delegation skill sets, that requires your ability to be mentored as well as mentor others. And all these Areas that I think sometimes going to the modern Western American style of therapy actually shuts down. Yeah. Because that's also like a huge part, if I'm from observation that I see of provider burnout too, is that providers stop being curious about their clients and they start like boxing in and assuming things out of their clients instead of seeing every new client as somebody brand new that you don't know, that you have the honor to get to know. Yes. I remember sitting in a restaurant and there was a guy that was sitting next to me and he was clearly in some kind of a mental health field, but he was talking to somebody. 
And he was just like, oh, yeah, like I got this diagnosis and new client is this diagnosis. And man, I'm so fucking sick of seeing these people with this diagnosis. Can't they give me something new? And again, like that is an example of somebody that has just gotten completely burned out and lost any curiosity in that, the people in that, front of them. That is so right. Gabor Mate's whole practice is what he calls compassionate inquiry that you have compassion, but you're also curious, as you say. And it's well illustrated by a client that I had one was a gay guy who was very, like a lot of gay men are very attached to their mothers. And he was very attached to his mother. And he had suddenly developed severe neuropathy to the point of paralysis in his hands. And he couldn't do his job. He couldn't tie his fancy shoes. He had very fancy tooled lawyer shoes and stuff. And he had a corporate job and he couldn't do it. And he couldn't work on his computer because of his hands. And he'd been to psychiatrists who tried to medicate him and thought he was resistant to change when he didn't want medication. And he happened to be friendly with a friend of mine who's into hypnosis with me. And he came in and told me what his problem was. And I said, was there or anything that happened to you right before your hand became paralyzed. You couldn't use your hands. Just think back to that point. And he said, my mother died. And he was very attached to his mother. He saw her every day. Came in and he said, I came to kiss her good morning the way I always did. And her hand stuck up out of the covers, paralyzed, and she was dead. Jeez. His way of keeping his mother in by doing that, it found other ways of remembering that he was her favorite and remembering how he loved her. And he let it go. And she became like a dove that had settled on his banister unexpectedly. And he watched it fly away. And he knew that that symptom didn't have to stay there. It was inside him. But all the meds in the world wouldn't have given him that. And you just had to ask a question. What happened? Where were you? Find out his meaning system and work on it. Well, and then assign some label and slap him in a box and give him a pill. Wow. That's a cool story. That's yeah, cool. that's a really stunning story. Uh, I all, well, Leo. Yes. Yeah, no, I just, I wanted to wrap up, not wrap up, tie a few different things together that were mentioned there because I thought it was really funny your example of mindfulness to help you keep bombing people or something like that. But but I think it was Ashley Frowley, who's one of the co-hosts on Sublation Media's stuff. She was saying, though, that ultimately the human condition is one that requires illusions or delusions, right? Like even if you're using mindfulness to trick people into doing their shitty job that does shitty things to people, or you have some sort of breakdown and you've been your thinking has been exposed as being wrong and it gives you a crisis. Yeah, you re-navigate your life, but the idea that you've stripped yourself of illusions or something is got to be false, right? Like, I think you just go from one thinking into another kind of thinking. There's this great meme and it says philosophy. You think things and there's a little arrow and a half a circle. You're wrong. And that arrow and half a circle and it just goes round like that. And so I, I think there's that thing of, yeah, I'm not sure that any of this is on any sort of secure ground. I think health, that there is definitely something, there is some version of health and there is some version of care and love. Like 
that stuff definitely does exist. But whatever you gets you through it from cradle to grave is I probably just whatever gets you through it. I'm not sure if it's necessarily based on anything real. And Jordan Peterson is a bit of a nutbag, but that's that saying, isn't there? A stop, a, a broken clock is right twice a day. Twice a day. And he says some stuff that makes sense, right? And that's the thing. Again, we listen to everyone, but don't believe anyone kind of stuff. And it goes the same with, we've had conversations about meds on this podcast numerous times where we've heard these horror stories of people who've had too much medication. But then we've heard other stories where medication essentially saves people's lives, right? It, let, it keeps them going and it gets them through a really rough patch. So again, right. like every, every position that you hear always has complexity and nuance. And, and it was just coming back to something you'd said earlier on about these labels or these sort of simple ideas, like everything, even the most simplest thing, normally you can unpack it and it's hugely complex. So I think even saying you have a political position, you're on the left. I think by definition, you're probably wrong. If you're on the right, you're probably wrong. Key thing is that we all exist on this planet and how the hell does anything happen or does anything work or how do we get along? Like the fact that we're all here, there's something impressive about that, right? Definitely. So, yeah. I yeah. have one more question and then we have to wrap up. I don't want to keep you any longer, but connecting to the idea of connection and social connection, there's a thing that we struggle with, I think, as content creators. There's these sort of ironies, I think, that when it comes to what I cover and what you guys cover with your podcast, which is that simultaneously, like we are invigorated in telling people to connect with each other, trying to get people to discover things in their own lives and in their own realities. And at the same time, we have to put it on a digital platform. Like that's like a multi-billion dollar corporation's ownership that they use, that they see because they're on social media. And I, like those very sort of media and themselves can be very disconnective at the same time. Like you usually are finding people like who are in your audience are people who are on social media and they're seeing stuff looking through tweets and then they stumble upon it. And it's, it's hard to tell a person to be offline when you're online telling them that. It's not really how it works, unfortunately, even though it's like, the struggle of the jobs. I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on the three of you on sort of social media's role in mental health, because I think people have a very, people say the very simple sort of thing of like how TikTok is like ruining everybody's brains and these kind of things. And Twitter's the devil and whatever. But I'm sure that for the three of you, you've had this kind of very nuanced and complicated sort of relationship with it as you do this work. That's true. One of the things that I ask clients, particularly child clients, where I've had them in, what kind of programs they watch, what kind of social media they're involved in, because it has to do a lot with their unconscious need. We had a blind boy who was very, his father had died, his father was an asshole anyway, and his mother loved him a lot. If you're blind, it doesn't do you any good with peers. He was totally into the magical, violent, robot contests where his people win and manipulated so that they could and so that you could see his handling his blindness and his incapacity by compensating with majestic physical capacity and i i think that sometimes they can help but they can also trap you in a magical universe where you control in a way you don't 
outside of control as in the rest of your life. And that's a lot of video games and things. Otherwise, it's this strange thing that people are your kind of friend, but they're not really a facade friendship. And so it loses a really important dimension. Social media is a tool of technology. And one of the things, it's a rephrasing of a term that I've heard from actually a lot of Buddhist people, but tools are tools, just don't make sure that you don't become a tool for the tool, right? Don't let the tool use you. Your job is to use the tool. And so I think we are going into that latter phase of the tools using us. Can social media be positive? Absolutely. There's a huge positive factor for a lot of people in a lot of ways. And there's a huge negative factor for a lot of people in a lot of ways. And I think I know a lot of people that maybe live in communities where they've never fit in, where like social media is especially in their teen years, is like their first connection to like somebody that they can really talk to, right? That sometimes, again, an example of Harriet expressed, but also like it can also be an area where you can vent out your frustrations through video games and activities. But ultimately, I think probably the biggest factor in, in social media is that there is no sense of pacing and privacy in when you use a lot of social media in that you get to know information about people oftentimes in social media that you may never get in real life, right? Or that or opinions stated rashly by people that had they been given some time and opportunity to actually think about it may have posted or reacted very differently. The most negative part of it is in a way like one of the one of my friends who went on this huge he was like no no social media for a year. I'm not going to do any Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, nothing just and so after a year I was just like, "Oh, how did it go?" And he was just like, "One of the things that I realized about my interactions on those people is how much it made me suspect of people in real life and assume the worst out of people. And like right. after a year away, he was just like, like when somebody had a like a cross comment or whatever, he was like, yeah, my first reaction was like, fuck you, go fuck yourself. I hope you get into a car accident kind of reaction, right? And he was like, after a year of just interacting with my friends in real life and all that, when somebody has a negative reaction, I no longer assume the worst out of them anymore. Wow. Yeah, that would absolutely play into the idea that it's a skill or it's a muscle that you can either develop or it atrophies, as in human relationships, right? Your skill. Right. Navigating other people's sort of emotional worlds. And that, that might be the problem. It's not necessarily exclusively like Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, whatever, that's bad. It's just that you are, by spending time there, you're not spending time doing other things. And those other things right. might include just hanging out with other people, being able to listen to other people, right. all that sort of stuff. Right. And then you lose that ability. And a part of that takeaway was he was like, oh yeah, now that I'm back, I like really curate my space. I don't like 
I I don't scroll into like really angry spaces as much because it's like he's I've always been like a hair trigger temper angry person mm. and why do I need to feed into that? So again, like everyone's different, but I think it can definitely impact how you respond and react to other people in in both positive or negative ways. And again, all these things, it's a tool. So be thoughtful about how it's impacting you, how you're using it, how you can use it to minimize negative effects. Right. I'm going to have to go now. Yeah, no worries. Unfortunately, but no I, worries. we could do this for hours. Like, I would be really excited to talk to you guys yeah. at any mo- at any moment. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for your insights, and I will continue to support the podcast. It's really great. Please keep it up. Good. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you yeah, so thank much. You. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons: Rebecca Jones, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker. Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine, Hartley Wilmoth, Red Yen Cola, and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interview personal update on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.